0: Tomorrow morning, starting at
1: 5.
2: From WAMU 88.5 at American University in Washington, welcome to the Kojo Nandi Show, connecting your neighborhood with the world. Eternity posts nude photos of women passed out at a party on Facebook. College students sit in class and type hateful diatribes about the professor on yik-yak or snide comments about Senator Ted Cruz's decision to run for president. As recently as a few years ago, you might have heard people defend these acts as cases of what happens online stays online. Today, despite the popular Internet term IRL in real life, there's a growing belief that what happens online is Real life. As we watch virtual hate speech and cybercrime take a real life toll on their victims, the separation that one social media theorist dubbed digital dualism seems to be fading. Today on Tech Tuesday, we explore how new social and legal norms are erasing the separation between life on and offline and giving us new perspective on events in the news. Joining us in studio to have this conversation is Danielle Keats Citron. She is a law professor at the University of Maryland and author of the book Hate Crimes in Cyberspace. Danielle Citron, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me. Also
2: joining us from NPR's Bryant Park Studios in New York is Nathan Jurgensen. He is a social media theorist and contributing editor for the New Inquiry, researcher for Snapchat, graduate student in sociology at the University of Maryland. Nathan, thank you for joining us. Hi! Thanks for having me back. Wish I was in the studio with uh, you and Danielle. Well, you sound like you are, so that's good enough. Nathan, <laughs> you coined, sorry to give it away. <laughs> you to- you coined the term digital dualism four years ago to describe the perceived separation between the things we do and say on the internet and what people now refer to by the shorthand
4: IRL in real life. Explain how digital dualists view the world. So, yeah, IRL. People oftentimes say IRL to mean, you know, not Facebook, not on the screen. And the R obviously means real. And so think about what we're doing. A lot of times you hear people say, yeah, the uh, – this is real life when you're speaking face-to-face and the internet is virtual. Uh, we have this term cyberspace, which to describe the internet, on versus offline, this kind of light switch on-off duelist mentality of the internet. And I'd think that that is uh, and made for good fiction, uh, like The Matrix um, or, or cyberpunk books like Snow Crash with the metaverse. You know, this is the, the space of... Glowing green ones and zeros—that's the internet world versus the real Uh, world—and I I think that fiction is a is a mistake. Uh, Instead, that we should understand the internet, uh, what happens on the screen, as real, as embodied, as material. Just as we should understand conversations face to face, uh, even when the screen is put away, that those are deeply influenced by the internet. They're virtual as well. So. Uh, it's, it's not that the Internet and uh, the real world are coming together and looking the same. Instead, I want to say that there's one reality, and digital is just one flavor of information, like textual information or oral information. We don't, You open up a book, you don't say, I'm going to jack into the word space and surf the text world or something like that. But we talk about the Internet that way, and I think it's wrong.
2: Who tends to believe in digital dualism and who
4: doesn't? Well, there's the the champions of the Internet. This is some of when the Internet was first created. There was uh, sort of this utopian revolutionary language that the Internet was going to be this this new space that would transcend national boundaries. And uh, you can be any race or gender species that you want. And uh, I think... What people forgot was that the internet uh, was real. It was made by people that were geographically situated. That means they have a certain demographically, they have a certain set of politics and interests and fears and insecurities. All of those were real and material, and they were built into the internet. Uh, and so the internet wasn't this pure revolutionary space. It was one that was built with all the political uh, problems and and, and benefits uh, of real social reality. And on the other side, I think you have maybe people that were are more dystopian who think that we can just put away our phones and log off the internet disconnect you know, do one of these digital detoxes. I'm put using quotes with my hands uh, when I say <laughs> detox. Uh, you know, this is this is the idea that you know, we can just get rid of the internet and live in the real world, and you know, you know, breathe breathe deep the pleasures of and uh, deep um, uh, uh, connection with reality by putting away your phone. And I think that really misunderstands the role of the digital, even when you're not looking at the screen. I mean, right now I'm uh, looking at this on air sign and microphone I'm speaking into and thinking, oh yeah, that'd be a good photo. I should post. I should post that photo. I'm not looking at a screen, but the internet is part of my conscious awareness and uh, you know that's how I, I think we should talk about the internet whether we're champion, you know whether we're supporting it or critiquing it uh it's 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 fleshy, it's embodied uh, rather than something separate and virtual.
2: Well, let's find out what our listeners think. 800-433-8850. Do you think of your online life and your real life as separate or not? Give us a call. 800- Four three three eight eight five zero, or you can send email to org. shoot us a tweet at Kojo Show using the hashtag Tech Tuesday, or go to our website, org. join the conversation there, and even though that puts you in the virtual world, we assure you it's all real <laughs> at this point. Daniel, how does this notion of digital dualism relate to your work on cybercrime and the suggestion that Harassment online is somehow less harmful or has less serious consequences than harassment in person.
3: Because harassment is perpetrated with words, often with words and images, it's almost the the response often to online abuse, which has profound impact on people's professional lives, their emotional lives, their, their physical safety. The response is, ah, it's ones and zeros. Turn your computer off, ignore it get over yourself, it's no big deal. Um, And I think Nathan's work um, sort of laid bare the really crucial conversation that we've been now having in the wake of Gamergate, um, the posting of Jennifer Lawrence's nude photos, that of course, everything we do and Say Online, we do in real life, it's embodied as Nathan was explaining. Um, It has a profound impact in in our ability to get jobs. Um, and our you know online reputations. So of course it has it has everything to do with our daily lives. Um, but it's true this notion of duality is often what fuels our trivialization and minimization of online abuse.
2: In recent weeks, Facebook, Reddit, and Twitter all said they will not allow nude pictures to be posted on their sites without consent. Why is that important and how does it help erase the line between, Life on and life offline.
3: Right. So I think in taking a stand and banning and helping victims in this way, you know, Twitter and Reddit... Um, Facebook, they're making clear that it's not acceptable to post someone's nude photos. And so long as victims let them know that these photos have been posted without their consent, it's a recognition that the very posting of nude images without someone's permission is a harm, that if it's certainly seen by employers, people lose their jobs, right? Teachers have lost their positions because the response was, we can't have, you know, kindergartners' parents Googling the teacher and seeing these photos. You can't work for us anymore. And I think what, you know, these companies have recognized is their embeddedness in the importance of all of our lives, that employers and, you know, dates and, you know, everyone involved in our lives, our clients are going to see it. Um, And so in taking a stand, they're making clear that not only is it banned, and it's not permissible, but it's wrong, and it has a profound impact on people's lives.
2: Last week, Facebook released an explanation of how it defines the types of content it bans from nudity to harassment, that's something you've been encouraging for a long time. Why?
3: Right. So I think when we want to educate users and teach them about the norms of a site, it's so crucial that we explain to them if we're going to ban certain kinds of content why it is that we ban it why, why, what the platform thinks it's so, so harmful and then of course in explaining you know, what it means and give examples then users will have a sense of what's permitted and what's not permitted on these sites and I think another crucial step for Facebook to do is to explain what happens when there's abusive content that's posted on their site not only what will happen to the content itself will it be removed what will happen? But are there ramifications for the posters themselves? And so, there's much more buy-in, I think, with your user community. The more users know about what it is that's banned and not banned, what and is then it what the banned that's
2: banned? How does Facebook explain its nude photo policy?
3: Right. So it. What it how it explained it is nude imagery, which is very specific about what it refers to when it's talking about nudity. So they clarify precisely what they mean by nudity and the fact that if, if nude images are posted on their site or sexually explicit photos are posted on their site without the person's permission, it should come down. Um, so I think explaining why it is that they ban it why they understand it as harmful is really helpful to educate your user community. Um, And in taking a stand against it, I think helps change hearts and minds about how we view the behavior, too.
2: Penn State fraternity was suspended last week for allegedly posting nude photos on a private Facebook page without the subject's consent. This reportedly came to light when a woman saw a topless photo of herself on the site. Talk about how college students view the Internet in relationship to, quote-unquote, Real life. I'll start with you, Nathan.
4: Can Can I go back real quick to the to the policies? Um, sure. I, I I just think it's an, an important point here is is the uh, bind that the companies are in because basically you know we want them to have these policies and educate their user base. Danielle is exactly right, and at the same time, it seems that our Response here has been to give uh, a few people running big corporations the um, the ability and and give them the responsibility of dictating what behavior is right or wrong, and um, it, I think it, it really is you know, is that the preferred solution? And, you know, or do we need to have more traditional uh, gatekeepers, you know, that is a traditional government authorities or police, things like that. Um, and, and, you know, who have been uh, very unsuccessful at dealing with these issues. So I don't think we have a, a really great um, response yet. But what's so interesting is how things have changed even in the last year, Daniel mentioned, you know, Gamergate and the celebrity uh, leaking uh, of nude photos and things like that. And uh, what's really changed is that we're having these conversations today. We're we're talking about social vulnerability. Uh, that some users are more vulnerable to let's say leaking information. If you're a young girl versus a young boy, it's far more damaging and stigmatized and obsessed over uh, when your photos get leaked. And I think you know, that's social vulnerability and that's a conversation that we should be having. Uh, and I think it gets back to the original point of, you know, kind of who is able to think in this more dualist way and it's much easier for people who are uh uh you know investigating uh, all these issues it's much easier for people who you look like me and look like the people that are often coding these sites, that is white guys uh, who aren't as socially vulnerable, it's easy to not have to feel the, the visceral, um, emotional, uh, real harassment that, that's involved here. So I, th- I think that's sort of the context that we should look at all of these, uh, You know, everything that we're talking about here, and that goes to college campuses as well, is bringing that conversation of social vulnerability, uh, onto what you post online as something that is real. On
2: uh, any any specific comment on the way that college students view the internet in relationship to
4: the quote unquote real life. I mean, I think everything that I'm saying is is general to the the internet user and college students. Um, as somebody who's taught a lot of undergrads, I, I mean, it's it's harder. It's it's very easy to make the case that digital dualism is a fallacy uh, to to younger people who you know they they live this. They're online. They know that it's real. Um, And sometimes it's a little bit... Sometimes you have to make this case for older people, um, but... I think it's it's very important that we bring, you know, social power, inequality, vulnerability uh, into these conversations, but not necessarily always defaulting to letting the companies dictate what is right or wrong, because they have very different opinions on on free speech, you know, Reddit versus Twitter. Twitter's made, you know, a significant about face uh, this year about what constitutes harassment. So uh, I don't know if just looking to the companies is uh, it's a it's a good first step, but it's not the entire answer.
2: On to the telephones, we'll start with Rio at Andrews Air Force Base in Maryland. Rio, you're on the air. Go ahead, please.
5: Uh, Good afternoon, and uh, I do have to say, I hope I don't sound like the caveman in the room, but I have to say that both the speakers have good points, but are we not responsible for reality? I mean, naked pictures don't just appear. Adults take naked pictures, teens take naked pictures, and they supply them to something that allows them to be broadcast on the Internet or seen or received. Now, for the person that may be cyber hacked or whatever, yeah, that's truly a crime, but that doesn't happen to the average person. Thus, if when it does happen to the average person, it is a tragedy, but how often is Joe Public being cyber hacked and having their picture spread out? If their pictures are posted on the Internet or some information is leaked, it is usually because that person provided it. So aren't we responsible for that? And once again, also, I come from a generation where, and forgive me for sounding like a caveman, if you were threatened, you were threatened in real life. So I I don't belittle cyber bullying or cyber threatening and things of that nature, but it's a big difference to be able to have a person with a fist standing in front of you versus at a keyboard. Yes, you can just turn it off.
2: Let me raise a question with you before I get our panelists to respond. If somebody mailed a nude photo of you in the snail mail and somehow it ended up being in the possession of hundreds of people, what would you do?
5: Well, Kojo, that would take us back in time. I would have to say to myself, how in the world did they get a photo of me? A naked photo of me. You mailed it. You mailed it. I mailed it to someone? Yes. Well, personally, I wouldn't mail mail naked photo of me, but if for some particular reason I had to do so, I know who I mailed it to, and then I would have to address that issue with that particular group or individual. What about
2: if it were intercepted after you mailed it, and you don't know who intercepted it? Nobody can identify anybody in the U.S. Postal Service who did it, and that person merely made a bunch of copies of it and spread them around your neighborhood.
5: Well, given that, once again, now you still have a specific instance in which someone knows where I live. It's not just as general as it being received in some branch somewhere and being spread in Iowa, and I live in Maryland. We're talking about my neighborhood, so it's got to be an isolated crime. Someone who maybe knows me, that is definitely... Why is it not a crime if
2: it's done in cyberspace?
5: Why is it not a crime? I believe because, once again, you have provided that... Yeah, but you mailed it. You mailed it, snail mail. But, but once again, I personally would not mail nude pictures of myself to avoid something like that happening. But, that goes back to responsibility. Okay, we I'm are responsible for some things, are we not? Especially privy information like nude photos. Allow
2: are. me to have Daniel Citron respond. What's the difference between what our caller Rio was saying and I, what I was saying about snail mail?
3: Right. So I think Rio, Rio expressed an expectation that if he was gonna mail a nude photo to someone that he would do it in a context where he trusted the person. But only he would expect them to keep it confidential. And that's precisely what people are doing nowadays, right? In the way that we once made mixed tapes or shared letters, love letters, people share intimate photos as a way to foster private sexual expression. And it's based on trust and confidentiality. And so and it's often in breach of that trust, in breach of that confidence that People post these nude photos online, and it's destructive, right? So um, I think Rio's right to say, "Look, we do have criminal activity afoot. If someone either were to hack the nude photo that he sent, you know, and via the post, we'd have we'd have a crime. Stealing the mail, we'd also have a crime, right? If we invaded someone's sexual privacy,
2: you're an advocate of laws that would make it a criminal offense to post a nude photo of someone without their consent." The media is reporting that the Penn State students could face charges in this case. What does the law say now? And how would you like to see it changed?
3: Right. So, in 16 states, it's a crime to post someone's nude photos, knowing that the person had a reasonable expectation of privacy and shared them in confidence, and that confidence was betrayed, um, and there is then the result of some harm, like emotional distress and professional harm. Um, and so, but it's true that in 34 states, it remains a, a compl- not a not a crime anymore, and I think that should change. But we've got to make sure we draft very narrowly tailored laws to only go after the knowing privacy invader, the person who knows that he or she is breaching confidence and intentionally posts someone's nude photos, knowing the devastating impact it could have. Can I jump
4: in real quick? Yes, of course. Uh, I mean the the big difference in what Danielle's saying and what the caller's saying is uh the caller's focusing on the person who took the photo not the person who uh, the victim of what is you know what's being shared beyond consent uh, and Danielle's talking about the person who is sharing who's actually doing the victimizing who is sharing uh beyond what they had per, what well, there was permission for and i think that latter perspective the not not the perspective that blames the victims here uh and focuses on the victims uh is is how we should be talking about all of this cuz by by all, by saying oh well you should just shouldn't be taking these photos and as Daniel said you know this is sexting sending photos back and forth this is a very normal part and every day you know the term average person was thrown out there uh, the the average person in some demographics uh, uh, in, you know involves uh, spreading these uh, sharing these kind of images uh, so what we need to focus on hundred percent here is uh, not sharing those beyond consent not sharing beyond uh, what you have permission for and instead of this uh, idea of uh, uh, you know oh, you just shouldn't be part participating in what is normal sexuality in the first place. Because what that does is cr- really reinforces the stigma uh, that when a photo does leak, right now that it's a huge stigma. It's, it's seen as devastating. There's been suicides around this issue, and we need to reduce that stigma. Uh, and we reduce that stigma not by saying, don't take these photos at all, because you're just making it more and more devastating when they do sh- get shared.
2: We got... A tweet from someone who says, Bullying is bullying. End of story. Your caveman caller should go back to his theoretical dwelling. I don't (laughs) agree with Emily's assessment of you, Rio, that you are a caveman caller, but obviously Emily is permitted to disagree with you if that's what she chooses to do. I'm just thankful you called. Rio, thank you very much for your call. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we continue this Tech Tuesday conversation On digital dualism, the fading distinction between life on and offline. Encouraging your calls at 800 433 8850. Does your digital life affect your personal and professional life? Would your online friends and your in person friends recognize you as the same person? 800 433 8850. Shoot us a tweet at Kojo Show or email to kojo at wamu.org. I'm Kojo Namdi.
6: Of the Kojo Namdi show in just a moment on WAMU 88.5. Coming up later today on Fresh Air, a conversation with Benito Martinez, who co stars in American Crime, the new ABC TV series, and John Ridley, creator and lead producer of the show. that's set in Modesto, California after a home invasion and murder and takes a multi ethnic and multi religious point of view, including suspects, victims, and their families. That's Fresh Air. 2 o'clock on WAMU 88.5.
1: This is JJ Yore, WAMU's general manager. One of the pillars of public service programming is to explore critical issues facing our region. Hunger is one of those issues, which is why we teamed up with the Capital Area Food Bank. More than half of you who contributed to WAMU's winter membership campaign chose to provide meals to people in need as your thank you gift. Over 100,000 meals so far. Support this effort. Call 800-248-8850 or give online at
6: wamu.org. Thanks. Support for WAMU 88.5 comes from Virginia Hospital Center in Arlington, now collaborating with Mayo Clinic as part of the Mayo Clinic Care Network. Details about benefits for Northern Virginia families are available online at virginiahospitalcenter.com.
2: Welcome back. We're having a Tech Tuesday conversation about Digital Dualism, the Fading Distinction Between Life On and Offline. We're talking with Nathan Jergensen. He is a social media theorist, contributing editor for the New Inquiry, researcher for Snapchat, graduate student in sociology at the University of Maryland, and Danielle Citron. She's a law professor at the University of Maryland, author of the book Hate Crimes in Cyberspace. Danielle, let's take it away from nude photos for a second and talk about Social Security numbers or my bank account number or or other kinds of private health information for instance the we're talking about the same thing, aren't we?
3: That's right. We're talking about information that's shared in confidence, that we reasonably expect it to be kept in confidence, and when that trust is breached, that it's punishable behavior just in the same way that when a federal actor publishes your uh, s- a sensitive information appearing in a federal file, it can be punished criminally for doing so in violation of the Privacy Act, and same with HIPAA, right, so that we, what we're protecting is that confidential relationship, an agreement to keep information private. And so that's precisely, let's, you know, let's destigmatize what we're talking about. Maybe, you know, our callers like Rio could better understand what we're punishing and what we're disapproving of when we say people shouldn't publish nude photos shared in confidence. It's the same principle with your credit card number that you give to your waiter or the social security number you share with your bank. We expect confidentiality um and when it's breached it's it's problematic
2: on to the telephones here is mara in washington dc mara you're on the air go ahead please
7: hey there i'm just calling to say that i've personally had photos taken and put online and i have friends who have had their phones hacked and they've they've found emails from their phones to weird accounts with personal photos and we're just normal people so i'm i'm just calling in response to the, the man who identified himself as he might seem as a caveman, I think he said. Um, We're just normal people, you know, and we haven't told our families because this is horribly embarrassing. And so, you know, his own daughter, his own sister could have had this incident happen to them. Um, and for me personally, it was posted on it, it was posted on an amateur porn site, and I had nothing to do with that, and the picture wasn't even a new picture. It was just a picture of me. Um, so, you know, this happens to all sorts of people, and just because we don't talk about it, to
4: people, because it's so embarrassing, um, doesn't mean that it doesn't happen and it isn't harmful. Nathan Jurgensen, care to comment? Oh, I'm just—I'm nodding. I'm, I'm very mm-hmm. much nodding. This is—you uh, know—we we have to to. I think you know we're beaten up on the collar uh, a little bit here, and you know it really comes from this understanding that posting things on the internet is this weird, uh, wild thing. Uh, and I think it, I think there's a misunderstanding here of how everyday and normal uh, communication with you know intimate communication, but also you know uh, with friends and with family that 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 happens through digital channels very very commonly. Uh, and uh, and I think. That's really, I think, the source of some of this misunderstanding. And so I'm just nodding along to to what Danielle and the, the last caller said.
2: Danielle, you've also written about ways to hold websites accountable for the content that third parties post on their sites. How would amending the Communications Decency Act do that?
3: So right now... Website operators are completely immune from liability for the for user generated content. And there's a good reason for that immunity, right? We might not have the Yelps and Facebooks and Twitters if everything a user said could be imputed um, and then a platform held responsible. But the very worst actors, right, revenge porn operators who are basically engaged in extortion, right? Encouraging users to post nude photos and then charging for their takedown. Extortionists should not be immune from liability. Nor should sites that encourage the posting of nude photos without consent or other kinds of cyber stalking content and that knowingly principally host that kind of content. So Collegiate ACB, cam- Campus Gossip, The TheDirty.com, you know, these website operators, their entire business model is the ruination of people's lives. They should not be immune from liability. It makes a mockery of what Congress was after in passing and uh, granting an immunity to what they called Good Samaritans who are mon- Monitoring the web for offensive and harassing conduct. So I'm just using the words of the statute.
2: Um, We got an email from Laurel who says, I find it interesting witnessing friends and acquaintances who have either surprisingly different online personalities than the people I know them to be in real life. Or who highlight aspects of their personality that aren't visible in person? I see people portraying themselves in a certain light and wonder how we shape ourselves in this virtual world. Are our online personalities who we really are? How does being online alter or warp who we really are? What do you to which you say what Nathan?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a it's a wonderful question. There's, uh, you know. The question isn't we have an online self and an offline self. Of course, as, a, as the anti-digital dualist person, I, I disagree with that framing. We have many, many more selves than just an online and offline self. The, that we just perform our identities and who we are differently in different contexts, different social contexts around your family. You hey, have your a boss, singing in the shower friends, self. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and it's it's different in all those different contexts. It's different on different sites. You might be a different person on Facebook versus Snapchat, and that's really really normal. Uh who we are is fluent is fluid. Uh it depends on on context and uh and so you know, the question here isn't, uh, you know, that we perform ourselves on the internet. It's that we always have performed ourselves. In fact, there's one of the most famous books in sociology comes from the 1950s, Irving uh, Goffman's Self-Presentation in Everyday Life. And he talks about identity as like you're an actor on a stage. Um, And and, or Judith Butler's famous work in the 1990s on uh, performativity, the performativity of, let's say, gender, sexuality. And uh, so we've Identity theory, uh, you know, going back a century, is based on this very idea that we have these various identities, that it's fluid, it's context-dependent, uh, and the Internet is just one more context. And it's actually, it's many more contexts.
2: We got an email from Anne. Anne writes that, Can you guys talk about the shooting in California that took place last summer? The killer had threatened women online prior to the killings. And I'm not sure if he was taken seriously by the authorities. Danielle, in many states it's illegal to harass or stalk someone online by sending abuse directly to the victim. Um, So talk about what our emailer just said.
3: Right. No, I think that's right. So in the Elliot Roger case, which the, um, Anne is talking about, there certainly were warning signs that um, Elliot Roger was had um, animus and gender um, sort of hatred, and but his threats were kind of directed generally at women. They weren't directed at a specific person. Because it's not
2: illegal if right. you post things online in public forums.
3: Right. And, or, and also just hate speech generally. So when you mm-hmm. say something that's really destructive about women generally totally protected speech. And so it's true that, you know, that could have tipped off the parents to get in touch with law enforcement because they're worried he had guns, right? So there are ways in which it provides a warning signal but other avenues of illegality. But just, you know, threatening women generally is totally protected speech. But you're right, you know, the caller's right to, to think of the Elliot roger case and demonstrate, I think, the broader problem that when threats are directed at individuals, um, very specific graphic threats, we often ignore them uh, rather than criminalize them, even though there are laws on the books to do so.
4: That was one issue I think uh, among, oh sorry, sorry. No, go ahead. (laughs) That was one issue I think among a few that happened last year that I think is really part of this changing tide of understanding when you see very hateful um, speech online that it isn't, quote, just the internet, uh, but rather it's very often tied to uh, violence, uh, physical violence, violence that happens uh, uh, in the world. And I think we need to, you know, the, another case uh, from a couple of years ago was uh, there was a, a guy on Reddit who was moderating, Michael Brutch, his name was Violent Acres, he went by on Reddit, he was moderating all of these uh, terrible, terrible, the worst of the worst boards on Reddit. And when he was outed by the journalist Adrian Chen and Gawker, he uh, you know, said, oh, it's, well, it was just the Internet. And here he was posting photos of real people, real women, uh, often uh, underage, and and he's saying, "Well, it's just the internet." And that was a very common refrain at the time. And I think we're starting to look at the look at things a little bit differently. That you know, uh, when we see uh, the kind of manifestos and the speech that Elliot Rogers was uh, posting online, that we don't think just the internet; we think potential uh, uh, violent um, and and real consequences here. But I'll, oh, go ahead, please, van You know,
3: I think. Nathan, but I think we're seeing a consistency, right? So, um, violent acres when he was sort of confronted by, um, uh, folks in the media, his response, you know, after Adrian sort of names him, he said, look, I was performing for, I wanted more likes. Yes, right? Yeah. So he was very much like this notion that what he was doing wasn't real. Um, I think it resonates tonight, today. You heard that from the Penn State. So I'm not suggesting that it's it means it isn't real, right? But rather that sometimes what we do and say things online, we would never do if we were face-to-face and could see people's so, you know, facial cues because the Penn State frat fraternity brothers, some said, like, it was just a joke, right? We didn't mean it. We didn't think it would really hurt people, right? And and the I think the idea is because they feel de-individuated, right, it's behind a screen, it's not real, that people act really destructively. I think it's, it helps mm-hmm. explain the behavior but not excuse it, which is, I think, Nathan, yeah. what you and I are totally in agreement about.
4: Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think that also brings up the, the point that these various websites can even encourage this behavior. Reddit was sending this guy trophies in the mail because mm-hmm. the boards were so controversial that they, uh, that, that was, that's good for Reddit, um, you know, because they were so evil uh, and and they were encouraging that. And then Reddit was saying, like, how it was a game. He had, you know, was keeping score. He was just earning points. And, uh, and you know, Yikyak, we were talking about that as well, has a similar, like, Reddit upvote, downvote for everything, uh, which. Can also encourage uh, uh, very inflammatory statements, but unlike Reddit on Yik Yak, if a thing is downvoted a few times, it's just removed from the network. So uh, how these sites are designed uh, is, you know, can really influence what sort of speech uh, happens on them. Yik Yak is one I'd like us
2: to yak about when we come back, but we have to take a short break now. Um, if you've called. and the number's busy. You may want to send us an email to kojo at wamu.org or send us a tweet at Kojo Show. Do you think the digital world needs tougher rules to prevent things like harassment or posting nude photos of other people in ways you'd never do in person? Shoot us an email to kojo at wamu.org. Go to our website, kojoshow.org. Join the conversation there. I'm Kojo Nandi. Afghanistan's new president visits Washington? What's at stake as the U.S. considers its long-term options in the country? Plus, Battle at Versailles, writer Robin Gavan on the historic 1973 fashion show that upended ideas about race, sexuality, and beauty. Today at 1 on the Kojo Nandi show on WAMU 88.5 and streaming at kojoshow.org.
6: The Kojo Namdi Show will be back in just a moment on WAMU 88.5. Have you ever gotten a chance to see the Kojo Nnamdi Show live? Well, we'll extend a personal invitation to you to join us next Tuesday, March 31st, and Wednesday, April 1st for the Kojo Namdi Show, broadcasting live from Anacostia for a two-day Kojo in your community from noon to two at the Anacostia Playhouse. Seats are available on a first-come, first-served basis. For more information, go to kojoshow.org.
2: Welcome back to our Tech Tuesday conversation on digital dualism, the facing fading distinction between life on and offline. Our guest, Daniel Citron, who is a law professor at the University of Maryland and author of the book Hate Crimes in Cyberspace. Nathan Jurgerson is a social media theorist. He's a contributing editor for the New Inquiry, researcher for Snapchat, graduate student in sociology at the University of Maryland. Let's talk Yik -yik. Yak. But first, explain how Yik Yak lets people in close geographic proximity chat anonymously with one another.
3: Right. So it's it's a social. It's an app that facilitates anonymous discussion, and it's geofenced, so it's only within certain locations. So there are like fifteen hundred colleges that um, participate in Yik Yak, Um, and students could be in a room, you know, listening to a lecture, and individuals in that room can anonymously post. Um, so I talked to a student at Duke University when I gave a talk about my book who who afterwards came up to me and said, you know, I was at a lecture last night for fraternities and sororities and a woman was giving a talk about having worked at Microsoft. And what popped up on the, you know, in the discussion um, were rape threats, like this bitch is going to be raped, you know, if she keeps droning on and on. And people were kind of commenting on the person speaking and making very sexually charged humiliating and threatening comments. And the student said to me, I felt terrified. I was thinking, look at this room. There are only 100 people in it. Who's making these kinds of comments? And it's very sort of silencing and, um, you know, hostile. Uh, so the woman told me, like, I'm not using Yik Yak anymore, and it's just, it's, you know, it's unfortunate that people have to feel this way about their colleagues at college. But it is, but it is within communities in in close proximity.
2: Taking advantage of the anonymity, Texas Senator Ted Cruz went to Liberty University in Virginia yesterday, Nathan, to announce his candidacy for president. He spoke to a captive audience of college students. They were required to be at the weekly convocation where he launched his bid for the White House, and. Some of them express their thoughts on Yik-Yak. Talk about both the immediacy and the anonymity of Yik-Yak in this circumstance, Nathan.
4: Right. So the anonymity allows people to say things uh, that they may not feel comfortable saying when their name is attached. Like we were talking about before, when you change the context, you change, uh, you know, one's identity or one's performance of identity. Uh, And so, you know, Ted Cruz's audience is... You know, liberty supposedly has a very specific set of uh, norms and rules and what you can believe and say and think and all of that. Uh, and, you know, then you get on Yitkak and you see that there are people who are in that geography. As Daniel said, this is geofence. They draw you know, a line on a map around the area, around the university. And so there's people there who had opinions that very much dissented from uh, uh, what, you would, what Liberty University describes itself as. Um, so, you know, you can, in, in some ways, it allows uh, some people to kind of speak truth to power, uh, to, to kind of speak against uh, the authority. And and at other times, people use this anonymity to be uh, harassing. And as Danielle described, or, uh, you know, people can say things that maybe aren't acceptable, which can be a positive or a negative. It's, uh, you know, people can talk about their depression, their sadness in ways that you can't on Facebook because Facebook is, you know, organized by what's likable. Uh, And so it, it I think we have to talk about that anonymity, but we also have to talk about that upvote-downvote thing that I described earlier. That changes what you'll say, because you want to say things that get upvoted many times. So in in some sense, it's not just this anonymity that allows people to say anything that they want. People talk about it as being like the id. It's just pure uh, reflection of what people want to say. Well, no, it's also being constrained by this performance of wanting attention, of saying things that will go viral, uh, which can encourage saying Uh, very mean things uh, because uh, uh, that'll draw a lot of attention or even saying kind of Hallmark card sappy things because that'll get a lot of upvotes as well so uh, we need to talk about you know the anonymity but also the upvote downvote and the geography it's those things kind of coming together that I think really describe Yik yak. On to
2: the telephones again here is Josh in Silver Spring Maryland. Josh your turn.
0: Hi love your show Kojo um so, two points. Um, first of all, like uh, everybody's browser usually has a back button on it, and if something you see doesn't jibe with you, you can always go away. And also, it's this culture of oppression thing that uh, your female guest uh, brought up—the uh, Gamergate thing, which started out as corruption in gaming germ- journalism and then got morphed into some kind of uh, feminist uh, ridiculousness. And, uh, you know, I just, I i don't see what the, the problem is. This is making people too thin-skinned, and it's, you know, online you're going to be exposed to people with different opinions from you, and there's no way you're going to get around that.
2: There's no way you can get around people threatening you online?
0: Um. You know, a threat, uh, threat online is different from a threat in real life. How come? Because um, they're not in physical proximity to you.
2: Um, so if you get a threat by snail mail, if you get a threat by telephone, you don't take it seriously?
0: Um, not not as much as if somebody is coming up to you on the street and threatening you.
2: Levels of threat, Daniel Citrin.
3: Right. So um, the caller has suggested that we can just you know, use our browser and, and browse away from threatening content or defamatory content or nude photos. But the truth of the matter is that, you know, over 80% of employers use search tools to investigate, you know, candidates to decide who to hire. And in over 70% of the cases, there's a negative result. And it's I don't think it's because employers believe that people have posted nude photos about themselves or have done something to warrant being threatened online, or that they, um, that information like they have a sexually transmitted disease, is truthful. I just think it's safer and easier to hire someone who doesn't come with that kind of baggage. So you can't walk away from online threats, online defamation, or nude photos, right? We can't because employers, clients, and friends can't walk away from it. Um, And threats are, if they're online or in person, they change how you live your life. They're terrorizing. And so when someone receives an email threat that is very graphic, and much of the women in in Gamergate, so Brianna Anita Sarkeesian um, experienced threats either via Twitter and their email accounts that were graphic, were detailed and said, bitch, I know where you live. I'm coming for you. And they, they radically changed where they lived and changed how they lived their lives. And strangers confront and harass them because of these posts. So it's uh, the idea that a threat online is different from a threat offline, um, I think belies reality. Nathan? I love
4: to follow up on that. Yeah, I mean, uh, you can kind of take the calls and put them in two camps: the people that are saying what should the victims of harassment do, versus people saying, you know, what should the victimizers uh, be doing differently. And this is another, you know, use the back button is, you know, what should the victims of harassment do? Um, and you know, I, I don't think we should reduce human connection to geographic proximity either. So even when uh, the threats don't necessarily come with a geographic proximity kind. Kind of a threat, Uh, you know. Just using these tools—Facebook, Twitter, whatever. uh, These are tools that you use to talk to your friends. They're part of your professional life, your family, intimate partners. And when those are being overloaded with threats, uh, saying just use the back button or turn off your laptop is like saying don't communicate with your family, don't have a professional life. This is removing certain people from. Uh, from public space making it unsafe and unwelcome and I say certain people I'm, I'm talking about social vulnerability women uh, 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 and other uh, vulnerable populations whether we're talking about um, I, I just I just it's, sorry I'm a, a little like, kind of jumping out of my seat here when I, when I hear the, those calls and I think we need to not be you know framing all of this through what the victims should be doing
2: right. on to Nelson in Silver Spring Maryland Nelson you're on the air go ahead please
1: uh, good afternoon. Uh, I wanted to say freedom for all involves respect, privacy, and permission. Uh, that's what's required uh, to be given. Uh, and, of course, when a person is hacked, when his computer is hacked and things are stolen, he or she is violated, much the way uh, a victim of rape is violated. And I'd like to add uh, an attorney I knew in Washington who, who who's no longer with us, Willie Leftwich, was working on a book on uh, the correlation between privacy and freedom. And going back to the 19th century, of course, his, his, part of his, his thesis were a, enslaved Africans had absolutely no freedom. Uh, the master of the, of the plantation had all the freedom. So there's this correlation p- between uh, privacy and freedom, I think, is, is, is very and valid.
2: Nelson, I was unaware that Willy Leftwich was no longer with us. I thought he was doing pottery somewhere here. I, th- right. I heard he passed. Thank you for telling me this. Someone yeah.
1: told me he passed. No, I don't think he's passed. I think you should check Thank check you that. for <laughs> correcting that. And may uh, I just add one other point? Yes. Although the Constitution uh, doesn't make, a, make any provision for uh, privacy, it does make a provision for uh, search and seizure. And I think when we, when we look at some of these things being done on the, through the Internet, we are looking at uh, things being searched and seized.
2: Okay. Thank you very much for your call. Can we talk a little bit more about the positive uses of the Internet and apps? A lot of us have social or professional relationships online or through social media with people we've never met in person. Nathan, how well can you know someone you tweet back and forth with but have never seen face-to-face?
4: I think quite well. Um, You know, it's different. Uh, Certainly nothing that I'm saying, you know, critiquing digital dualism is saying that uh, G-chatting with somebody and meeting at a coffee shop are the same thing. Uh, They're they're very different. Some, you know, one is good for one, one's good for another uh, and uh, at different times. And Uh, But I I do think that human connection and intimacy cannot be completely reduced to geographic proximity. Uh, And in in some ways, uh, communicating via a screen can be just as intimate or more or in different ways than being close to somebody uh, geographically. And so I just think we need to get away from uh, that sort of framework, and you know we talk about like the the better uses of social media, you know where we're we're talking a lot about harassment and and some of the negative stuff, but at the same time. You know, I'm thinking about there's been uh, some research on coming out of the closet on Facebook. It's In many ways, it can be easier because of this we call context collapse. All your different social contexts friends, family work, all that are all on Facebook. And so you can come out of the closet, even if, let's say, you have bigoted parents, uh, and all of your friends jump in and, and you know, lots of likes, and they, they give you a lot of support. support and, uh, and in some ways, that the digital uh, connection that's not necessarily geographic can make the situation a little bit easier, can make uh, uh, things more supportive. So I think having all of those together, you know, we can't just be, you know, is the internet good or bad? Well, of course, it's both.
2: Daniel, talk about the world of live online video games. Some of the people who hang out there, apparently, including one of our previous scholars, defend their right to do and say what they want. But can we separate the misogyny that sometimes occurs in that universe with everyone else's reality
3: right so i mean the people playing the games and sort of half of gamers are female um if the environment is such that you feel like overwhelmed by the threats you leave right and it deprives the individual gamers who are facing the kind of threats and hostility from that experience right much in the way that you know journalists who are using twitter that is indispensable to their professional lives if they're threatened on twitter the response can't be just get off twitter as many police officers told um, amanda hess and other journalists right that's not the response the response is they should have equal opportunities to use all of these indispensable tools anonymous not an you know not anonymous they can bring out the best in us right and we've all got to have equal chance to do so
2: Um, Nathan, what about the suggestion that by spending so much time online, we are neglecting our in-person friendships and relationships? Are we erasing digital dualism at the expense (laughs) of face-to-face encounters?
4: Yeah, so the critique of digital dualism here is that online and offline aren't zero sum. Uh, there's no such thing as purely online or offline. So uh, you know, the the dualist conception is that more time spent online means less time spent offline, and vice versa. And that's really what I'm critiquing. And there's turns out there's a lot of research uh, on uh, you know on. You know, people that use social media more tend to spend more time with people face to face. They're more likely to be civically involved, more likely to vote, more likely to meet with people offline, to join clubs. All these things, you know, sociologists might call social capital. Uh, uh, and and so there's, you know, all this research that just doesn't make sense through the digital conception. Through, sorry, through the digital dualist conception. That research just doesn't make sense through that frame because, well, how is it that people are doing more of both? They're spending more time online and offline they 're connecting more on social media and face to face well, if it's zero sum, that just doesn't make sense uh, and I think that's really good evidence for why we should break that zero sum on off uh, line kind of view and instead understand that the digital is just one vector of information that's in one in our one reality, and we often use uh, uh, the internet, social media, to meet up with people more face to face. That's what all. That's what we do, when we're on social media is talk about what we were doing when we were face to face, and vice versa. Uh, you know, sometimes at the, at the coffee shop, you're talking about what you saw online, and it's it's it, it flows back and forth so fluidly that uh, uh, you know. That we just—I we, think—we really need to get rid of this uh,
2: uh, this dualist conception. That's all the time we have. Nathan Jurgensen is a social media theorist. He's contributing editor for the New Inquiry, researcher for Snapchat, graduate student in sociology at the University of Maryland. Nathan, thank you for joining us. Thanks, a lot. Daniel Citron is a law professor at the University of Maryland and author of the book Hate Crimes in Cyberspace. Daniel, thank you for joining us.
3: Thank you so much.
2: And thank you all for listening. I'm Kojonandi. Coming up tomorrow on the Kojo Namdi show, The War Criminal Next Door. How U.S. officials are using immigration laws to track and expel suspects from conflicts abroad. Plus, tune in next week for Kojo and Your Community in Anacostia. Two days of special broadcast from the Anacostia Playhouse. The Kojo Namdi show, noon till 2 tomorrow on WAMU 88.5 and streaming at kojoshow.org.
6: More of the Kojo Namdi show ahead on WAMU 88.5. Support for WAMU 88.5 comes from General Dynamics IT Cloud Solutions, providing your enterprise with secure federal cloud solutions. WAMU 88.5 is your listener-supported NPR news station in the greater Washington, D.C. region. You can support the Kojo Namdi Show and all the regional coverage you value by becoming a member today. Click the Donate button at WAMU.org and thanks.